It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I have said for a long time that the problem with our next guest is that he doesn't know what he's talking about. He spent more than two decades in government as an intelligence analyst, diplomat, policy advisor, including as the director of the CIA's Russia analysis and as a staff advisor on Russia matters to the vice president. Now, he wrote a terrific book about three years ago, all about how we could avoid a disastrous a disastrous confrontation with Russia. It's called The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. If only the United States and the Russians would have heeded some of the warnings in that book, we'd all be much better off. But it's actually still worth reading now because it's written in a way that even laymen like me can understand. These days, he is the director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute, one of my favorite think tanks and one of the few think tanks that's trying to do their utmost to keep us all from blowing one another up. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome back to the program, George Beebe. George, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, uh, Frank. I I appreciate the uh, invitation. George, uh, let's start with where we are with with Russia. Uh, Apparently, Tony Blinken and his counterpart, uh, Tony Blinken, of course, the American Secretary of State, and his Russian counterpart a day or two ago, had their first conversations with one another since this Ukrainian invasion began. Is this all uh, having to do with the prisoner exchange? Well, I think any time we're talking uh, at high levels with the Russians, that's a good thing. Uh, We need to be communicating. Uh, One of the dangers that we're facing here is misperception, accident, miscommunication, Um, And so we need to be reaching out to the Russians and talking about how we can avoid potential catastrophe here. So I think this is a very positive development. And um, what about the prisoner exchange? I I think there's been a lot of attention paid to this WNBA player, uh, not necessarily as much known about uh, what the Russians would get in a prisoner swap. What, What do we know about the details of this situation? Well, not a lot has come out in public at this point. Um, the Russians, I think, are, are, are very, very uh, pragmatic about this sort of thing and quite cynical. Um, they tend to, to play the game of leverage on these things. So they're not going to make concessions if we don't make parallel concessions on our part. So the way these sorts of negotiations go is, well, you want this from us? Well, we want this from you. So let's see what we can do. And I think that's what's been going on behind the scenes here. We have some people here in custody that the Russians want back. So they're not willing to play ball, so to speak, on Brittany Griner, this WNBA player. 
unless we're willing to make some concessions for them on this. So that's what's, I'm sure, going on behind the scenes. What is your perception of how the war between Russia and Ukraine is is going right now? Both sides seem to be so interested in putting out propaganda, supporting the version that their side is winning and winning big, that it often becomes a little difficult to tell what's actually happening. What's your perception of how it's going? Well, I think you're exactly right. You know, that old phrase, the fog of war, certainly applies right now. And it is hard to know exactly where truth lies amid all these claims that are out there. What I think is happening is that the Russians, after some initial very poor planning in the first phases of this war uh, that led to really a, a disastrous attempt to just roll their tanks into Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, they, they got uh, – rebuffed. So they've tried to regroup. They've refocused on uh, eastern and southern Ukraine, trying to capture what's called the Donbass region, um, where some separatists had actually declared independence from Ukraine way back in 2014. And the Russians never recognized uh, the independence of those uh, so-called republics there. But but then in February, Putin did. He announced that Russia was going to recognize their independence, and then he sent Russian forces into Ukraine. Well, now they're actually trying to capture that region, um, and they've made some slow progress. They've, they've moved forward over the past several months there, largely by just bombarding the heck out of that region with, with missiles and artillery and laying waste to uh, a lot of uh, Ukrainian infrastructure. And uh, the Ukrainians have had to slowly retreat. Um, Now, right now, the Ukrainians say that they're about to launch a counteroffensive to try to recapture a significant city in that area, Kherson. Um, And it's hard to tell exactly uh, whether they're making any progress on that right now. So the key question right now is, can the Ukrainians, who've been getting some more advanced uh, American and NATO artillery, use that new equipment to uh, turn the momentum back against the Russians? And for several months, that momentum has been going uh, Russia's way. So this is something everyone's going to be watching very carefully. Evidently, the United States is now sending an addition or is preparing to spend an additional hundred million dollars to train Ukrainian pilots. In your view, what should the United States be doing here in term? I mean, it's very clear that we're siding as a government with Ukraine over Russia. But how big of a role should we be playing in this conflict, which increasingly seems to be a proxy war between the United States and NATO and Russia? Well, I think we should be playing an enormously active role in all of this. Um, but what we've been doing so far actually is is only partially going to bring this war to an end. So we certainly have to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. We certainly have to prevent the Russians from being able to roll into the Ukrainian capital and put a puppet regime there and essentially take over the Ukrainian state and and eliminate it as an independent entity. That would be a disastrous thing for the United States, uh, not to mention for the Ukrainians. 
And we're doing that. So far, we've been quite effective in denying Russia's ability to resubjugate the Ukrainians. But the other part of this that the United States has to be involved in, and so far we have not been, is trying to steer this toward a diplomatic solution, Mm. toward a compromise that will end this war. Right now, it seems like we've got no plan other than to just provide weapons and training and intelligence and military advice to the Ukrainians. And and there apparently are, are people that believe that if we keep doing this, that the Ukrainians can win. And I think that's probably false. Um, what's most likely there is we wind up in a, in a stalemate that, that's years long, that is in danger constantly of escalating into a direct war between the United States and Russia, and that leaves the Ukrainians absolutely devastated. Right. Uh, and and it leaves Europe with an open wound that uh, is going to cause a great deal of suffering for everyone for a long time, uh, that devastates the international economy and has huge repercussions for Europeans and Americans. Uh, we're talking um, with uh, George Beebe. He's the author of the book, The Russia Trap, and uh, these days he's with the the Quincy Institute. Please continue, George. Um, and, and that's not an outcome that I think is good for anybody. So what the United States needs to be doing is using the leverage that it has right now, and it's got a lot of leverage, to steer the Russians and the Ukrainians toward a compromise. It was the Ukrainians re- can't keep fighting unless we support them. And we're the only country in the world that can persuade Putin that he's better off compromising than fighting. And that includes using the leverage of economic sanctions that we've applied on the Russians. If we were to hold out the prospect of easing or lifting those, if the Russians agree to compromise, that's a powerful carrot. So, you know, I think the United States has to play a central role uh, as a leader in diplomacy here to, to bring this war to an end. It doesn't seem like, at least publicly from what we're hearing, that diplomacy is a big part of the Biden administration's strategy on this, does it? Well, no, not so far. You, know, you had mentioned earlier that uh, Secretary of State Blinken had not met with the Russian foreign minister since more than a week prior to the war's beginning. Um, that's not a good thing. Uh, we don't seem right now to be pursuing uh, diplomatic engagement with the Russians. So I think that's going to have to change. On Sunday, it was reported that uh, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, had fired two of his top law enforcement officials, saying that they both had failed to root out cases of suspected treason in their agencies. And Zelensky apparently also revealed that his government is investigating more than 650 potential cases of treason by security officials. What does this say to you, uh, these uh, these firings that Zelensky has already made and is apparently in the midst of making about how the Russians have permeated the Ukrainian government? Well, um, it's not very surprising. Um, The Russian intelligence service is very capable, um, and Ukraine has been a top priority, if not the top priority for Russian intelligence for many, many years, uh, going back to the breakup of the Soviet Union. So um, 
the fact that the Russians have, have made this kind of progress isn't very surprising. And the Ukrainian government, Zelensky's regime, um, has involved you know, a lot of personal political patronage. Um, he has appointed a lot of people to very key positions, including um, as head of uh, their intelligence service, his personal friends that go back years and years. But these are people that don't have experience uh, in intelligence or running these organizations. Their qualifications are that, you know, they're friends with Zelensky. Mm. So um, to expect them to have a lot of success in running these organizations under those circumstances is probably pretty foolish. So that that combination of corruption and, and personal political patronage inside Ukraine and you know, Russia's uh, focus on penetrating the government, I think, uh, together explain what's been happening behind the scenes here in Ukraine. Um, Vladimir Zelensky and his wife did a photo shoot for Vogue magazine. They're on the on the cover of Vogue, along with the whole glamour spread. Uh, Zelensky has also made a number of video appearances at the Grammy Awards, at the Cannes Film Festival, the World Economic Forum. Uh, he's met with celebrities like Ben Stiller, Sean Penn. Can you understand why a lot of folks that might be supporting Zelensky's resistance to the Russians might think that this is more the kind of thing that a an actor does uh, than the kind of thing that the president of a warring nation does? Or is this exactly what a nation that's dependent upon Western goodwill should be doing? Um, well, you know, I think you put your finger on, on a, a very important question. Um, the uh, Zelensky, of course, is an actor. Right. He, he is not a professional politician. He came out of the world of entertainment. So to some degree, it's not very surprising that this is something that uh, he's pursuing. But um, what's really been going on here is that the Ukrainians have been engaged in a massive public relations effort. All of this is, is very much professionally directed and crafted, um, and it is focused on shaping American and Western uh, public opinion. And the goal, of course, is to maximize the amount of support that the Ukrainians are getting uh, from the United States and Europe. Um, and they've been doing this you know, extremely effectively. They've spent an enormous amount of money and time and effort to do it. Um, and the the Vogue shoot is a prime example of that. Uh, not a lot of people, I think, ordinary Americans understand what's going on, but I think um, increasingly people are starting to see that uh, all of this doesn't happen by accident. Mm. Uh, and they're recognizing that uh, you know, their opinions are really uh, the targets in all of this. Now, that doesn't mean that the Ukrainians don't have a worthy cause. That doesn't mean that the United States shouldn't be providing Ukraine with the ability to defend itself under these awful circumstances. But it does mean that we ought to be thinking, I think, first and foremost about what's in the interests of the American people here. Uh, U.S. government decisions and policies ought to be made by Americans in the interests of Americans. Um, we should not be essentially exporting our foreign policy decisions to another country on this. 
before I let you go, I have to get you to weigh in on the controversy involving Nancy Pelosi and her possible trip to Taiwan. Evidently, uh, she announced that she was planning on making the stop in Taiwan without getting the approval of either the Defense Department or the Biden administration. The president has basically said publicly that the military doesn't think it's a good idea. China is promising that if Pelosi does go to Taiwan, there are going to be significant repercussions. Some folks are saying that uh, we should learn from the lessons of ignoring Russia's red lines on Ukraine and not not ignore China's red line here. Other folks say that if we back down to what the Chinese are demanding of us, that makes us look weak on the international stage. What do you say? Uh, do you think Pelosi should go forward with this trip from for, to Taiwan or or not? Well, I think this whole thing is very poorly handled. Um, the United States has long had uh, what we call a policy of strategic ambiguity on Taiwan, um, recognizing the enormous sensitivities in China, which regards Taiwan as not an independent or separate state, but part of one China. And that has actually been um, since the opening of uh, U.S.-Chinese uh, diplomatic relations you know, back many decades ago, um, the official position of the United States as well, that there is one China, not two. Um, and although we are committed officially to helping Taiwan uh, improve its defense capacity, we do not have any kind of military obligation to go to war to defend Taiwan against attacks. Um, and the danger is that the, the closer the United States gets to saying, well, Taiwan is in fact separate and we will in fact go to war to, to defend Taiwan, the more we will essentially challenge the Chinese to either accept that uh, or to take action of some kind, which would be probably quite dangerous. So um, I think that that policy of strategic ambiguity, um, which is you know an attempt to finesse all of this so that we don't get into a direct confrontation, um, has been very effective and should continue. Those people that believe that we ought to essentially, you know, throw the gauntlet down against the Chinese and say, essentially, look, Taiwan is a separate country uh, and we are going to make sure that uh, China can't invade. I think that's a recipe for a confrontation and one that would be very dangerous. And I don't think it's one that's very necessary right now. So I think Pelosi's uh, planned trip could provoke a real crisis in U.S.-China relations that will not serve anybody's interests right now. Um, now, unfortunately, we're because of the poor way that this has been mm. planned, it's going to be hard for us to back out of this without it appearing that the Chinese have had some sort of diplomatic triumph on all of this. And that's not the kind of thing we should be you know, moving towards. So we're, we're in an awkward situation that's going to require a fair amount of finesse to get out of it. So uh, given the mistakes that have already been made up until this point, 
what sort of finesse could get us out of it at this point? What would you advise either the Biden administration or Nancy Pelosi if they were to ask your advice about an off-ramp on this one? Well, I think uh, in general, what you want to find is some sort of pretext for not following through right now without appearing to back down under Chinese pressure. So that's where you get into sort of creative uh, excuses um, that you know you, you may not want to announce any kind of, you know, oh, we're not going to go after all kind of thing, but um, find some sort of way not to follow through anytime soon without announcing that you're backing down. I think that's sort of the direction that you would need to go. Got it. George Beebe, it is always a treat talking with you. I always learn so much from our conversations, and uh, your your analysis of foreign policy is always so refreshingly clear of, um, of so many different uh, agendas and ideological discussions that seem to drive the rest of the foreign policy discussions, whether it's on cable news or in the halls of Congress. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Frank. George Beebe, uh, author of the book, The Russia Trap. You can check him out over at the Quincy Institute. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.